All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucksters? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to it. Clearly, uh, this is not the studio, but I am in a room, a hotel room. I, I went ahead and threw for the nice room because I'm here tonight uh, in New York City to tape my special. Now, those of you who've been kind of hanging out with me during this process of building towards this know that I'm riding a fine line, that there seems to be a, a way I, I prepare for this stuff that I'm always surprised that it happens. There's, there's no healthy way for me to, uh, to get ready for, for an event like this. And I've done many specials. There's a lot of things that go through my head. There's a lot of things that, uh, that I'm doing to try to maintain some sort of you know, groundedness, but none of them are great, but none of them are terrible. You know, I'm a relatively healthy person in terms of physically, but for the f- past month or so, a- as many of you know, who have been listening, I've been unable to eat well. I, sorry, New York City. And I'm on the 18th floor, yet it still comes up through the windows. You probably can't hear it. But, you know, I've been you know choking down these cigars to get that nicotine thing. It's I, I'm recording this at 1030 in the morning and I've already drank three large cups of coffee and smoked a medium sized cigar and my brain is on fire. But this is old school me. You know, it's just the way back when I, I did radio with Brendan and the fellas. Uh, I used to just sit there and drink, you know, literally a quart of Dunkin Donuts coffee and eat a bag of M&Ms and just get lit. But now I just seem to be focusing, trying to focus and and stay with the process of making this special as good as I can make it. I should tell you before I continue rambling that uh, Elvis Mitchell is on the show today. I've kind of known Elvis for years. Um, He's a writer, a professor, a film critic, and the host of the radio show and podcast, The Treatment. But we've certainly hung around in the same places before we've talked to each other for years i've known this guy and now he's got to film out he's a documentary filmmaker now and he just made the movie is that black enough for you about black cinema from the 70s and it's great it's it's a great movie and i have to uh confess my ignorance now look i sometimes say things that you know, I don't think through and that may seem generalizing or, or off-putting or, um, you know, uh, uninformed because I, I kind of fly with a stream of consciousness, but I am certainly willing to learn and adjust and you know, reflect on my, uh, my ignorance or my uh, mistakes in terms of, you know, how and what I say. I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, it doesn't mean I'll stop saying things, but I will think about it. And if I am wrong or incorrect, uh, I, I can admit it and I can uh, own it uh, for sure. But this situation with black cinema, I didn't know the history. And for some reason, in my mind, a lot of the black exploitation movies, I never saw them because I thought they were campy somehow. I thought that that people watched them, you know, some of them anyways. You know, I've seen some Dolomite movies. I've seen Shaft. I've seen some movies but I thought, in, by and large, that a lot of them were, were sort of campy. But I was educated, man. I was schooled by Elvis's movie, and it was uh, enlightening and exciting to watch the film and you know, make note of the films that he talks about, which are in the 
uh, and there must be over a hundred. He goes really through the entire history of of black cinema and black independent cinema, which goes back to the silent era. But I watched Coffee for the first time uh, with with Pam Greer for the first time a few weeks ago, and on some level, as a guy who likes film, that seems to be you know almost a criminal oversight. I wouldn't say criminal, but ignorant. And it just got me engaged with this history that I didn't know about. And, and along with um, a few weeks ago when I talked to Henry Louis Gates uh, about, uh, you know, the black community building, you know, from the early 1900s or post-Reconstruction. Like, there's just so much I don't know and I'm excited to learn. And this movie was uh, spectacular. Uh, and I was you know, very excited to talk to Elvis about these movies as a guy who should know. And I believe that I should know, as somebody who pays attention to movies, about this chunk of film history. And because of his documentary, I now know it. But I've, I've started watching a lot of the films. And, and Coffee, as a fan of 70s films, was raw and, and, and sort of unlike any movie I've ever seen in its depiction of, of drug use from the era and just you know power dynamics you, you know, within the uh, criminal world to a certain degree. And, and also the, the, the story of a female heroine, which was, you know, totally compelling. But Elvis really goes into uh, a, a lot about black history uh, in, in film and also about the appropriation of it, obviously, uh, not unlike almost every uh, art form uh, that the white cinema took from it. So I highly recommend it. And, and I will talk to him in a few minutes, but I'm excited about it. But I don't know if anything is going to be as exciting as last night I went to a screening of Two Leslie. We did a Q&A, me and Andrea Riceboro and Michael Morris, and uh, Brooke Shields was in the audience. Brooke Shields was in the audience, and I could not even take it. Look, you know, Brooke Shields is Brooke Shields. Everybody in the world knows Brooke Shields. I feel like I grew up with Brooke Shields. Now, you know from this podcast that, you know, I have a certain familiarity with people based on their their public-facing beings. And uh, and sometimes, you know, I just, I, there's there's no boundary there. Like, I approach them, like some of you approach me, you know, with complete sense of, of familiarity. And Deborah Winger was there, another person who is one of my Instagram ladies, but I've never met her. And, and I didn't recognize her at first. And it was sort of awkward when I finally realized she didn't know this. But when I finally realized, I'm like, oh, my God, it's Deborah Winger. Like, there was a moment there. I was like, who's this amazing uh, woman talking to me? And, I, and then I just sort of like, it took me a second to realize she was there with her son. So I got to meet her and talk to her, which was great. But uh, I saw Brooke Shields. And as everyone was walking out to go to this after party thing, I just said, how are you, Brooke Shields? <laughs> and uh, she says, I'm good. Good job. And and she was walking out. But she went to the thing, and I got to meet her and talk to her. And I got to say, it was a life highlight. I, I don't even, I can't explain it, but I feel like I ha grew up with Brooke Shields. We're roughly the same age. And I remember her from the beginning of her Brooke Shields-ness. And it was just really... Uh, She's really uh, sweet and and uh, funny, and it was fun to meet her. I, I can't really explain it, but uh, I don't know that anything's going to top me meeting Brooke Shields, and I don't even know why that is, but it is. So after tonight, my special will be taped, and my tour will be done. Uh, that's more than a year of being on the road hammering this set. Uh, it's a long time. 
And something I've been wondering about for a while is what exactly I can do for fun, you know, after this. Do I even know how to have fun? This is a big question in my life. And and I don't know. But I, I now I, I have some, you know, time on my hands and I should be able to find this out. And I've been, or hopefully, be able to discover the fun. I've been talking about this with my producer, Brendan. In fact, we are thinking about making a... Uh, a separate series about it, me trying to have fun. We thought of maybe doing it with Marvel movies or some other kind of pop culture distraction, but nothing was really sticking with me. So we got on the mics last week and and talked about it again because Brendan had an idea. This got me thinking about something. I'll uh-huh. tell you exactly where I was thinking about it. In fact, I'll show you where I was thinking about it. Do you have your phone with you? Yeah. I just texted you something. See if it comes through. Um. Oh, yeah. So that's a, a video from a televised pay-per-view from uh, two Saturdays ago. And if you play it, you'll see a guy uh, standing next to a professional wrestler, like cheering out of his mind. Yeah. A guy with a blue mask and glasses. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> when was this? Uh, like two weeks ago. <laughs> Who is that guy? Uh, yeah, who is that? Who is who? The guy cheering? That was me. Yeah. Uh, the guy I was cheering for was the champion of uh, uh, AEW, which is all elite wrestling. Yeah. And I went to it in New Jersey with uh, with our friend Chris Lopresto, who oh, yeah. uh, we used to work on Morning Sedition with us. Yeah. And it was a sold out show at a hockey arena, about 12,000 people. And I was standing there going like, this is just amazing. Like I, you know, I used to go to this stuff as a little kid. It's kind of had time in my life where I've totally ignored it. And there, but, but the, the sense memory was there like yeah. to immediately get locked back into it. And I really have with, especially with this promotion, because the, the things that they're doing with it are very recognizable to me as exactly why I started enjoying it in the first place. Well, over the years, you know, because we've worked together for so long, you know, I've, I've, I've had to learn from wrestlers because you your interest in wrestlers has brought a lot of wrestlers around. I mean, I've yeah. interviewed several big wrestlers. And I think people wonder, you probably even wondered it for a time like, well, you know, it's stupid if you know it's fake. What What's the point then? Why do, you, why do you care about it? And, you know, it's very easy to answer that for me, especially now having, you know, uh, lived most of my life dealing with entertainment is I don't care. Like, there's nothing about it that I'm even worried. I'm not even concerning myself with artifice. In fact, it's very real from the sense that does the guy or woman who's playing the role and trying to get something across through this tremendously athletic, difficult performance, do they deliver it, right? Yeah. There's this amazing guy right now that's at the top of that um, promotion, AEW. His name is uh, MJF. He's a it stands for Maxwell Jacob Friedman. And his gimmick is just like, he's this Jewish kid from Long Island who thinks he's better than you. That's his, even his catchphrase. <laughs> I'm better than you and I know it. And I'm better than you and you know it. And he uh, he did this whole bit that he was angry with the promotion and they, because they weren't taking him seriously enough and he left. And they played it off this way. They let him leave for six months, three months. And he was gone. He was off TV. Then he comes back and he's, going to challenge for the title because now he's back and he's got the rights to challenge for the title. And he goes to a guy who's managing the champion and he's like, I'm doing this because of you, because you used to work for WWE and you did not hire me. 
And in fact, you sent me these emails encouraging me to keep sending you tapes and to keep, uh, you know, keep in touch and try to get a job with you. And then sent me this email and he reads this email in the ring to this guy saying, uh, you're not right for us. Please stop sending us emails. And, um, you know, WWE hires world-class athletes. Maybe someday you'll be one. You're not one. And he's like, that email made me want to kill myself. And, <laughs> Uh, every day I've lived my life thinking I'm going to stick it to you. Right. And this guy's supposed to be the heel. Right. Yeah. And so the, the, the manager, he says to him, look, I, I'm glad you feel that way. Like, frankly, when I send an email like that to you or anybody else, I'm trying to light a fire under you. He's like, I used to work on the carnival circuit. I'd get my face beat in every night by these guys when I was 17 and I'd be crying in my bed, bleeding. Like, if you're worried about an email, you've had an easy life. And he's like, stop taking shortcuts. Stop doing all these things. You, you come out, you cheat. You're, you're, you claim you're better than people and that. Just try to do it, earn it, right? And so they set this up. He finally says, I'm going to fight. I'm going to do it all. I'm going to throw away my, the things I used to cheat. I'm not going to hit people with, 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 with foreign objects and that we're going to, I'm going to do it for real. Yeah. And I'm going to this show. This was the show that Chris and I went to and Chris and I are both like, well, he's got to cheat to win. Right. Like, (laughs) and in fact, what would be the best thing is if he is going to cheat and then doesn't. And the manager realizes he did the right thing. And so the manager turns on his own guy and cheats for him, right? Yeah. I mean, that would be the best story, that the guy, the manager finally sees in him what he wanted to see in yeah. him. Well, sure enough, that is exactly what happened. <laughs> the, guy, the guy gets down to the ring. He's yeah. going to hit him with, he has a giant ring. He's going to put the ring on the finger. The manager says, like, pointing at him, you're not going to do that. He takes the ring off. He throws it away. But now the guy, the champion, puts him in the sleeper hold. And yeah. he's fucked, right? Yeah. The, the ref is knocked down and yeah. <laughs> the guy says, go wake up the ref. manager says, go wake up the ref. He's you got to get wake him up so that he can see you got this guy in a sleeper hold. As he turns to go get the ref, the manager slips him a pair of brass knucks to MJF. Yeah. Who gets up, uses him. He becomes the champion. <laughs> I was so thrilled that the story played out like that. I yeah. don't like it, it was it was not that I wanted it to be real. It yeah. was that I wanted them to really tell the story that made the most emotional sense that yeah. could go on the most ups and downs. Right. It's a script thing. Yes, but here's the other thing. When you really look into what it is, like, they're not scripting it from the perspective of they're writing it down on a piece of paper and here's you guys' roles and what you're supposed to do. At least that's not what these guys are. WWE does that to an extent. Yeah. This is all improv, right? right. These guys sit and they talk about the, like, much like you and I did when we had Mick Foley on. Yeah. Here's what's going to happen. Ultimately, we're trying to get to here. It's up to you to perform your part so we can get there. Right. right? Yeah. Nobody said to you, Mark, Mark, here's everything you have to say. <laughs> yeah, I've done movies like that. Exactly. Right. It's it's very, very close yeah. to a to a large long form improv. Yeah. All of this is to say, this is leading up to the fact that um uh you and I are going to go uh enjoy this the way I just did, live and in person. Uh, out in Los Angeles on, on January 11th. They're going to be out there at the LA Forum. You're flying and I have out? tickets for us. Yes, I'm <laughs> flying out. All and right, we're going to go to AEW Wrestling. I'm in.
I'm ready. Good. I mean, I got choked. I, I got choked up. You telling me the story about the kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this this will be a, a good test too to see like what the type of character that someone does as a wrestler, particularly not a cartoonish wrestler. Like all these wrestlers in this AEW are just generally people, and they're not playing a a, a cartoon, right? And so I would be, I'm going to be interested to see what you wind up latching onto. Exciting, good plan. Got a we got a a, a fun field trip coming up. Okay, that's a tease of a longer episode we just put up for Full Marin subscribers where we listen to an old wrestling angle we did on the radio with pro wrestler Mick Foley. But it's also a tease of this wrestling field trip Brendan and I are going to do. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to document all of it with some clips here on the show and full episodes uh, on WTF+. So if you want to subscribe to that, go to the link in the episode description or click on WTF+. Over at WTFpod.com. I'm going to be a wrestling guy. Well, I'm going to go the wrestling thing. I'm going to see if it clicks. Is it ever too late to lock in with the excitement and drama and and energy of professional wrestling? I I don't know. We will find out. I, I am sort of, I would be amazed and somewhat disturbed, but excited to become like a, an all in wrestling fan at 59 years old. It's possible. Brendan has liked wrestling, loved wrestling since he was a kid. So I'm definitely going with the right guy. So look, Elvis Mitchell is here. Uh, his documentary is That Black Enough For You is now streaming on Netflix. And uh, I, I was thrilled and uh, grateful in, in a way to watch it and, and be, you know, educated through this curated experience that Elvis put together. And we talk about it now. I feel like there I need some background because like I was I watched the the doc twice. You watched it twice? Okay. Yeah, it's a lot in there, dude. It, okay. it should have been two or three episodes. You know that. Okay. Didn't you? The Fincher said when we went to talk where he goes, No, this has to be five or six hours because you can't get this in a two hours. It's maybe. true, man. It's like it was like taking a you know, it was like uh almost like a a whole uh semester. Good. I wanted to be compared <laughs> to education. Thank you. Oh, it was like taking a class. It was like Harold Ramis and, and no, Stripes. but it, but I mean, you are educating. I mean, that's the, you know the thing is, I'm I you know if anybody's your audience, I am. I'm a relatively smart guy that didn't know half that shit or three quarters of it even. Really? Yeah, that, that's man. Shocking to me. Is it? Yeah. I mean, I don't. Uh, you know, I'm not a total film nerd. I'm not. That would never accuse you that. But yeah. you're also, but you're a student of popular culture. That's right. But but like it was just sort of this. Uh, not unlike, I guess, many primarily white people uh it was sort of a blind spot you know i would have had to go back and i obviously i went back at some point and kind of rewatched the 70s anti-hero movies which you know you sort of use in this movie to make an example using your doc to make an example of of how the black filmmakers handled that and what they did with that and how they shifted that dialogue around the anti-hero but like i didn't i no one was leading me that way so you but, know. That, but that's the point of the doc because yeah. nobody was leading you that that's way. That's right. I mean, yes, exactly. But that's what I'm saying. Like you know, it, it, but to my, uh, like my fault in in not knowing it is that I didn't take it upon myself to go watch all those movies because again, I didn't really have guidance. And I think that if anything, like I, I was wondering if you had a book. So like I asked the publicist, I said, can you give me a list of every movie that's in this doc? 165 movies. Well, that's what doc. I got. I, they said it's 165. Here's 12. 
But how are you going to do that? I mean, people always ask me that shit. You know, you should have some sort of primer that goes with it. Well, what we have is the ability to pause and write stuff down now. It used to be if you saw this, the kind of thing you rented or whatever. It's I like, get it. Sure. But, you know. I almost did that. <laughs> yeah, so now it's <laughs> so now going to have to. <laughs> I have no issue with people yeah. pausing and writing things down. I mean, I wish you'd had a chance to see it theatrically. Hmm. Just because, oh, that stuff it, looks so good. It, it's, it, but it's just this stuff was made for yeah. movies, and to see that shot of Billy D. Williams leaning into the frame, yeah, you yeah. can start before his face turns. Oh, and lady sings the blues. Yes, yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. You can see the the his manicure just light up, it's like right. Oh, he's like like Marlena Dietrich, right? Yeah, movie. and he was so excited about that. You talked to him. I it was it was good to see him. I didn't know he was still alive. Oh God, he's and the greatest guy, and completely seems like a great guy, self-effacing. I mean, yeah. giggling. Yeah. yeah, fifty years later, like he's still fifteen years yeah, old. Yeah, it was hilarious. And and I just saw Glenn Terman in in a in that uh, Del Toro sort of series. Yeah, the, the yeah. horror anthology. The horror anthology. Still, yeah, still working a lot. Still working. And and but again, another great guy. And yeah, there's so much you can. I mean, there's so much. You got left out we could have talked about the fact that he was one of the three people up for the role of of han solo yeah. in star wars oh really oh, yeah. that, well that's the point that's the thing i'm saying is that there was so much in there i had to, i had to watch it twice i i watched it twice because i missed things like there there were certain departures within the narrative of the doc that could have been their own half hour 45 minutes you know like what are you thinking well i mean well just more of the music and the the, the power of soundtracks and also just the are we recording that by the way oh yeah okay and just and and also the you know the uh the two kind of like because it seems that you're making you're contextualizing something but you're also making an argument in this movie in a way oh completely yeah an argument. yeah that's, and that's the point it's to make an argument just because so much of this and again you as well as anybody, yeah. a really smart consumer of pop culture know that there becomes this kind of binary way that black culture is viewed. Right. It's either this or that. Yeah. It's black exploitation right. or not. Right. Well, no, it's more than that. Right. And so what I wanted to do is, first of all, to do this thing that you never see with black movies where you see a compendium like for the Oscars, the greatest yeah. clips of all time. Yeah. There's a bunch of clips like Godfather whatever, and then there's always... They call me Mr. Tips. It's right. always the same black clip. That's right. It's always the one black clip. It's like yeah. as if there's nothing else. Sure. And I thought, oh, if nothing else, I wanted to make a movie that could be all these, that could be its own compendium of the greatest clips of all times that were never included. Right. Just seeing, again, Billy D. Williams lean into the frame. Oh, yeah. And he's actually giggling yeah. because he can't believe himself. That, he can't even stay in character. That he's getting he, that kind of attention. He's so tickled. It, but how long did it take you, like, the, what I was going to do is, like, fill in some backstory in terms of, I mean, you've been a movie critic for a long time. Sure. But this is, you, you, where you, where'd you start? The New York Times? Golly, no. I started, gee, where's, where'd I start? At the LA Weekly. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I was able to go. But where'd you get uh, your, your uh, education around film? Watching movies, it's it's just watching. I mean, movies. did you study film or anything? No, no that's for sap studying ah, film. No, I study except for the people that take your classes. Yeah, <laughs> poor, poor kids, dear God in heaven. But yeah. it's a uh, no. I got my degree in English literature, right? So as my mother course. said, you know, don't you already speak English? Yeah. What are you gonna do with that? Yeah, I'm qualified to drive the Uber that brought me here. I should have sure. done that. We've been here on time. <laughs> uh, but I always watched movies, and as getting to in, in, in the documentary had this weird kind of foundation laid by my grandmother who would yeah. just say stuff like, the Andy Griffith show was on, there are no black people in I that. love Where that do you quote. think you are? There are no black people in that show. Where do you think they are? And I'm like, I'm six. What are you doing to me? But 
it's also this thing too because also we're roughly the same age. Remember that time when if you saw a white person and a black person in something, it was adult entertainment. They'd just be talking. Yeah, I, I don't know if I ever registered that, but but I guess that's if true. If you're a black person, you kind of go, whoa, like. Um, what, this movie has TV movie as a kid, My Sweet Charlie with yeah. Al Freeman Jr. And, and Patty Duke. She was pregnant. He was some draft dodger who was yeah. trying to help her out. Yeah, they, there's nothing remotely sexual between them, but because she's pregnant and he's there, it's adult entertainment. It, like these things always struck me as being completely insane or this double standard where. In movies, you know, during the Hayes Code era, obviously, yeah. when there's a married couple, there would be twin beds. Sure. And as a kid, I watch this and think, wow, white people are crazy. Yeah, yeah. Because you never saw married black people. Yeah. Therefore, you thought white people lived different than we did. Well, I think you touched on so much stuff in, you know, sometimes in passing. You know, like that quote from your grandmother is great, but also the, the idea that, you know, the... The group of Jewish immigrants that started the motion pictures, you know, that Neil Gabler sort of argument of, of creating a facsimile or, or uh, an idealized America sure. uh, through uh, through the films that they could pass in or that they could, you know, that they could manufacture but, you know, a this, place it, where they could live. This is a fascinating thing about this, Mark. So much yeah. of this is built on this weird, weird self-hatred mm. or self-abnegation, this idea that these people creating myths. And there's a myth in American movies that really doesn't exist in any other place where yeah. they're about heroism yeah. and about standing up and taking this kind of stand. Yeah. And so when the, we'll have that clip in the movie, this weird thing that this free had watching uh, well, the, the Shawshank Redemption. Oh, yeah, right, right. Well, Morgan watching Freeman Rita Hayworth. is watching Rita Hayworth. Yeah. And the part wasn't written for a black person. Yeah. In fact, everybody in Hollywood wanted that part. You know, yeah. Charlie Sheen, everybody who was hot wanted that role. <laughs> but, but Charlie Sheen was hot. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I know. That, that could be its own separate documentary. Yeah, sure. But um, Morgan Freeman gets it, and he says, I love when she does that shit with her hair. You kind of go, wow, that's about black men having been indoctrinated to have see straight hair like this. And you also think, too, that Rita Hayworth was a Latina who had her, basically her skin bleached, and had her hair dyed. I mean, so... This, there's so many different levels oh, yeah. of, of of reality being denied that they're touched on, and you and you explore that you know pretty pretty thoroughly in terms of of people doing all types of brownface, you know, in in Hollywood. That there's an idea in the movie that you kind of you kind of blow through, which is that the entitlement of of white culture thinking they could do it better. Like in that, I'd never heard it framed like that. I, I mean, I always assumed that it was an idea of sort of just what we do, but I didn't think of. You know the the superiority thing. You know that you know we can mimic it better. Oh, oh sure. I mean, it's this. I was close to Pauline Kael, who's yeah. a film critic in New Yorker, and every once in a while we have this conversation about Olivier and Othello. And one of her intimations was, you know, that he could do it better than a black actor. Yeah. I, went, I don't think that's true. I'm pretty sure he can't be a black person better than a black person. I'm not going to argue with you that he's talented. No, so it's, that becomes this kind of generational thing too, which is why I wanted to include both Olivier and Orson Welles doing that, doing Othello. Doing but Othello. but don't you like? Isn't there any sort of pass given for tradition and Shakespearean theater? That's not the question. I mean, yeah. the question is: there's the, the become, there is this kind of entitlement that comes in this, yeah. and then there's also this kind of regard for that too. Right. Well, you know, he's doing Othello, and uh -huh. of course, he can bring something to it. The fact is. For all that kind of tradition, it also became this kind of de facto segregation where black actors weren't allowed to do it. So that's the other side of the coin. Well, that, well, that's the thread through the entire thing that, you know, that initially in film, you know, blacks were depicted as clowns or slaves. 
And then in blackface, yeah, even blacks playing those, yeah. And and then that leads us to Bugs Bunny and and Mickey right. Mouse and wearing those gloves, right? Which clearly come from blackface, from minstrelsy, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And but that but what was interesting and in, and in telling was that you know that lasted for for decades and decades, right? So that and, and it, but the counter story that I didn't know about was the history of black cinema, you know, even starting in the silence. That I just talked to uh, to Henry Louis Gates about his documentary about the rise of of black cities, black towns, black banks, black fraternal orders that were sort of, you know, put together in in as a a sort of reflection of white culture in order to have their own communities, right? Because we were segregated from Exactly. Those what was interesting was that you you were able to to find and, and really kind of put into context these early independent black filmmakers who were directors during the silence. Not which, just directors, but directors, producers, actors, yeah. writers, actors, and had to book the theaters. I mean, in effect, it's a black film version of the Negro Leagues where you have to do all this work that certainly no white director right. ever had to do. Well, I think that what my point was that was probably in you know just collusion with... Uh, if that's the word, uh, with with the sort of burgeoning, you know, black business world and the burgeoning black communities where they were like, well, why can't we have this business, too? But also this is thing where black people want to see movies. It's as simple as that. In, yeah. in addition to the, creating this, this parallel universe where you have this thriving back black middle class yeah. that grows in Chicago right. that creates Ebony Magazine yeah. and Jet Magazine yeah. because you're never going to get into Time or Newsweek. And then because of Ebony and Jet, there's the exposure of the Emmett Till picture because oh, the white press yeah. isn't going to cover that. that. Was, I didn't know, but that, that was powerful in the, in the doc. You, know, you really packed it in on that doc because those moments of, of that really landing something for black people was like a, a moment I didn't really know about. I think in some weird way, it's like I've been waiting my entire life to do this. Yeah, it I mean, seemed like it. Like back and forth, you mentioned Skip Gates, and when I met him, I did the Elaine Locke lectures at Harvard about mm-hmm. 20 years ago now. Yeah. And in the way the lectures I gave were, a lot of this material was in that, those lectures. Just thinking about that, because there's often so much sort of rage in characterization. If you see Step and Fetch It. Yeah. You can feel the anger in the performance that's directed into this other kind of physical physicality yeah, right. that becomes sort of subtext. Yeah. And and what I wanted to do was to make a film or a project rather about all those those displaced emotions. What happens to them finally? So then they get to explode in this decade from sixty eight to. What was that quote about uh, what happens to those emotions? Well, it was from Ralph Ellison. Oh no, this the dream deferred. That's from Raising the Sun. Oh, Raising the Sun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's the play that like, yeah. it's the line that leads to Raising the Sun from the poem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What happens to dream deferred? It's but it's 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 it led to Raising the Sun, but it also led to these. I mean, you think about. I mean, as a kid, I remember seeing. With my, in fact, my, we just had a screening at AFI Fest, and my sisters were there. Yeah. And they remember, oh, yeah. You remember what our boyfriends were saying to you about Night of the Living Dead? I went vividly. Because yeah, see, that's another context that I didn't know about. You know, that, that you put it into this historical frame. But, you know, kind of moving, like, let me try to keep it in some sort of, you know, timeline. Because you, you sort of do this uh, it, by putting into historical context, you know, it, it, you kind of take it up through... Yeah, a quick introduction of all the movies of how black, the word black and, and black actors and, and, and uh, 
performers were represented that you know everything shifted for you in the 60s but all that leading up to it um was a very sort of quick indictment and 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 the groundwork for really how hollywood sees you know black people and and you have these actors like uh fishburne and uh Sam Jackson? Yeah, Sam Jackson. You're talking about their experiences about interacting with movies and having no real black role models, but then having to, as you said, kind of adapt to the possibility that movies were for everybody and that they wanted to still be in the movies, but it, it was erased for them, that they never had representation. Oh, God, it's this thing that, and I was really very careful about doing this. Yes. If you notice, a number of people, Sam Jackson and Fishburne yeah. and Charles Burnett yeah. and Suzanne DePass, talk about, I wish I had a black cowboy, I wanted right. a black western. Now, it's not that there weren't black westerns, but because during that era where Michelle was making films, you have a western that would also be a murder mystery and a screwball comedy. Those were the silence, right? No, no. These were soundies. Okay. But th- all these things would be crammed into one right. venue or one film because that's what you did. You thought, you may never get a chance to make another movie. I'm going to pack in as much as I can. Kind of what I did with this, actually. Yeah. So, um, but what you never had was that, that sort of thing. And like all these people, Sam Jackson, Fish, yeah. I know. A lot of people, like me, you grew up in the South or you had relatives in the South. Yeah. So you saw working farms. My grandmother had a working farm. Yeah. Which is to say you saw a black person on a horse. Yeah. And seeing a black person on a horse, what does that tell you? At the very least, they can control the direction that they want to go in. Yeah. They may be stopped, but right. they have that control. So just being denied that kind of image in a movie, what does that say to you? What does that do to you? If you're... Black people in Westerns are basically standing on the porch wearing a bow tie, passing out drinks, or waiting to be sent home from the fields instead of being on a horse. That gives agency. That gives power. And to, that takes us to me, and I mentioned this a couple of times before, but yeah. when I heard Paul Thomas Anderson talking about Buck Swope in, in, in Boogie Nights, he said, yeah. I thought it would be kind of funny and absurd to have a black cowboy. I thought... Why is that absurd? And this is somebody who's grown up in movies and knows movies, but that's the message even he got from the movies, that the idea of a black cowboy is absurd. And even that word is kind of a basically an epithet. I mean, nobody was called a cowboy as a compliment. It was something that we used for black ranch hands. Yeah, and also there, it's like a, as time has gone on, there was an entire uh, rodeo Kind of. Uh, There's a clip in the movie from Black Rodeo. Yeah, this movie from 1972. Yeah. Absolutely. And there, there were many black cowboys. Oh my God! Of course there were, but we never saw them in the movies. I know because the mythology of the cowboy in the movies was something different than than the real experience. Of but the also, cowboy. it again, it it connotes power and sure. agency. Absolutely, absolutely. And it is the original kind of movie myth, right? Except if you take that away from black people who are just as responsible sure. for this creation as anything else. Yes. You, you take that away from them, you're saying the message is, the subliminal message that, you know, black people don't belong doing that kind of thing. It would be absurd to have a black person on a horse. That's what movies were telling us until the 60s. Right. That it was a, an insane idea, and a, a black a, person on a, a horse. A long time. And, and, and it's still a conversation, and it's still not It's not correct. When, Representation is not correct yet. Oh, God. But, you know, it's, I, and I tried to figure it out. Yeah. I'm glad we're talking about this yes. in, in this way, because I tried to figure out the way to phrase that, because so often when the word representation comes up, yeah. it becomes this kind of buzz where the people kind of fling away. Oh, sure. it makes people uncomfortable. Right. Oh, how am I going to be judged? And I said, so how do I say this in a way? So. I, did, I had two tracks. One was that idea of bringing up the Western so you could 
you could be playing it somehow. Well, there weren't many black cowboys. Why weren't there yeah. that? So it's a question you get to answer yourself rather yeah. than have me pose it for you. But the other part, the other way to offer that question up was for me to say, what's the best way for me to summarize what representation was? If you're a black person, you're wearing a bow tie, you're there to deliver something. <laughs> you're not there to go dancing right. with Ginger Rogers. Right. Or to, maybe you get to lead the band in a short. Right. You know, or, or you get to dance and leave, but you don't get to... Again, I grew up loving screwball comedies. I'm, there's probably no bigger admirer of Preston Sturgis than me. He not only made these comedies about that sort of madcap life, but also they were judgments about class and wealth because he bounced back and forth between being poor and being a, a, a creature of society. Yes. And so for his movies to basically reduce black, as soon as you saw a black person in a Preston Sturgis movie, there was that ridiculous dialect that no black person actually spoke. I have family from the South. Nobody talked like well, that. Well, I think what's sad about the idea and the reality of truly institutionalized racism is that, you know, because it, it must make you ask, like, of, of this guy that you respected, is he fundamentally a racist person? Or was that just what people did? Certainly, it's this thing that's both, isn't it? You know, yeah. I mean, it's, it's people. If you don't have the, I don't know, the wherewithal to bucket, then what happens? To now, who you? are you? Yeah, yeah, and, and it, it it's worse than institutionalized. It just becomes inertia. It's easier not to try to move it away. But isn't all that inertia? I mean, I'm just trying yeah. to come up with a, other trigger okay. words. Yeah, you, yeah. But you know, it's certainly that. And what starts to happen, and I was starting to talk about this, with my grandmother is that she would say, in effect what critical thinkers say. What is not there? Some of the things that, that resonate with me around certainly the line about tuxedos that you had, then you're able to sort of answer that with uh, Ivan Dixon's movie, right? So in, in Ivan Dixon, I'm looking at him like, how do I know him? I only know him from Hogan's Heroes. And he made this movie, what's it called? Spook Who the Sat, spook who by, sat the door, by the Door. That, that caused such... Um, what, what's the word I want? Controversy. Such a, an impact that, that it was seen as almost uh, criminal by the FBI, right? Oh, my God. He, I met him. One of the thrills of my life was I got to meet him. Because here's the great thing about this story, right? You know, I showed that clip from that movie, Nothing But a Man, which he did before Hogan's Heroes from 1964. It's Abby Lincoln and Ivan Dixon, like movie stars. Yeah, that was great. What's her name, that woman? Abby Lincoln. Great. She was a jazz singer and an actor. Beautiful, beautiful oh, clip. But also two people yep. who look in that clip like yep. movie stars, Should don't be. they? Yeah. And by the way, a movie from 1964 with an all Motown soundtrack in yeah. it. It's like, it's, you could make that movie today. Yeah. But anyway, so he makes that movie. All this Ivan Dixon stuff for me that sort of came to a head when I asked him. I said, so I noticed as a kid watching Hogan's Heroes that the editor of Hogan's Heroes was Michael Kahn, yeah. who later went on to edit all of Steven Spielberg's movies. Uh-huh. He's For the last 40 years, he's been Spielberg's editor. No kidding. His first two movie jobs, or among his first two movie jobs, are Trouble Man and The Spook Who Sat By The Door. Uh-huh. Ivan would tell me that we would sit, we'd be invited, Al Reddy, who's the creator of Hogan's Heroes and later produced yeah, The Godfather. I had him here. Yep. Yeah. He's, and a great storyteller. Yeah. He would have these academy screenings at his house. So so Ivan Dixon yeah. and, and Michael Kahn would sit in the back row and right. I would go, I can't do this anymore. This is making me ill. I, can't, I know I have to support my family, but I can't play this guy who sits by the radio in the basement and never leaves the prison camp. Yeah. And Michael goes, listen, when you direct your movie, you let me know and I'll edit it for you. So that's how this bond is forged. Yeah. So this guy who goes on to do 
basically to be part of Steven Spielberg's aesthetic, yeah. got his start working with Ivan Dixon. Because everything shifted in what, 68, you think? I, for me, that's the point, just because it becomes, I didn't want to do one of these things that's 100 years of black film, you know, because yeah. I think it's a fool's errand. And no, I thought ridiculous. it was interesting that you stopped it. Yeah, well, but I, you said this is when it ended. It does kind of end there because when the whiz the fails, whiz. yeah, but that's later. But so sixty eight, but seventy eight is when it is when it ends. Yeah, yeah. for me. But sixty eight is just this point where, after Night of the Living Dead, you sort of can't deny it anymore. Right? There's a black action here. Well, well, that's like you know, I didn't ever read it like that because I didn't read the papers. I'm not in the black community. I didn't read the criticism of it that you know post Watts and post riots that you know the way that the Night of the Living Dead was received. By the black community was 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 twofold, right? But also that you know Romero, whether he knew it or not, was really making a profound social statement. Do you think that he was conscious of all that? I think he was trying to solve a problem. Then he realized what he had because he, the actor just didn't show up, and he had to do something. And Dwayne Jones just stepped in. It wasn't cast as a black guy. Oh God, it wasn't written because when you watch the movie, yeah, you realize his race is never mentioned. Yeah, ever. I know it's kind of it, it's you notice that. I mean, what was your response to it when you saw it as a kid? What do you remember about it? I remembered like it, I remember noticing that 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 you know this is just a guy, and he's the only black guy in it, and he's the hero of this thing. But it's never you know you don't have no backstory, and you don't have, and no one ever mentions it. And there was just by nature of historic you, you, you know training, it was awkward. Like you felt you know the white woman who was hysterical. And she's having to put her trust in this guy who's being decent. It kind of goes against all the tropes, right? It comes. It's a fast thing. It's almost this joke about what would Sidney Poitier do if he was surrounded by zombies? This, this kind of question. You thought, well, what would he try to charm them first? Maybe, but you know, he know. I mean, he because he's always the most able person in any situation. Yeah. And lose the feel. He fixes everything. It's like, what can't this guy do? Yeah. Oh. You know, touch one of these women. That's what he can't do. Interesting. But, yeah. you know, but in, in, in Night of the Living Dead, he's not treated like any kind of special case. He's the most efficient person That's there. right. He's kind of like pissed off. They have to do everything. Right. Because he realizes that there's so much kind of ineptitude and hysteria around him. He's got to just step up. But again, he's not treated as this exceptional black man. He's just a guy who's doing the job that needs to be done. But there's no re- there's no way to read that ending. Uh, other than a black man getting the, shot. Let me ask you, when you saw that, the word, how did it impact you? Do you remember? Did yeah, you? I, I, I do. I, I remember that it became uh, an indictment of of sort of Southern white culture to me. That, you know, because the way they portrayed those guys with their hats and their guns, and it was a standard kind of uh, lynch mob looking bunch. Sure. That, it, you know, that there was no way to read it other than, you know, this was a lesson about racism. Well, for me, it wasn't just Southern whites. I mean, growing up in Detroit, and this movie comes out the year after the riots. Sure. You can go, oh, this could be any place. This right. could be Los Angeles. Right. And Charles Burnett certainly makes the case about you. Well, I was said, young. I, did, I don't know if I knew everything. but yeah. Well, I was a kid, but you know, I was a black kid, so I probably had a little yeah. different perspective than sure, you did. Sure, you saw different things. Yeah, but yeah. Charles Burnett talks about being a kid in, in, in L.A. in the 60s, and if you were walking at night, you knew you, you were going to be stopped by You knew you were going to be stopped by the and, police. And you, you felt like you didn't matter. Your life didn't matter. Oh, completely. That, yeah. and, and the movie said that about you too. Yep. That your life didn't matter. Well, that well, I thought that was like you know putting that into context with the uh, the sort of uh, climate of the country that that movie, and then being able to say that you know some parts of the radical black community thought it was a lesson 
to not trust or hang around with white people. No, if this is the lesson. If you try to like, if you try to be better than this, you try to show them you you're part of this. So you want to integrate. This is what's going to happen to you. You're going to go down like this. You'll be thrown on top of a pile of burning bodies. You couldn't not take that lesson after Malcolm X and Dr. King and Medgar Evers. There was too much collateral damage to think anything other than that. But they locked into it. Absolutely. And the same with that Ivan Dixon movie, which was about a, a guy who got trained by the CIA and then starts a black nationalist movement that the, the CIA and the FBI took it as an instigator. And, and, and that he was uh, to be watched. He, he told me, he said that movie ended his career. He told me that, and that United Artists, after 18 months, came to him and said, here, here's your negative. Why don't you just take this back? This yeah. is yours. They gave him his movie back. Yeah. When does that happen? Well, I mean, the, the struggle of black filmmakers at that time when they were given opportunities, it was this sort of low-stakes gamble most of the time. But it wasn't given opportunities. It was seizing opportunities. Because if you're waiting to be given an opportunity, Not you'd still happen. be waiting. That's what he did. He walked away from a guaranteed job staying on this TV show, making pretty good money, being a black face on TV, because he couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. The same thing happens for Melvin Van Peebles. He, this is all about seizing opportunities. Same with Harry Belfonte. But he, earlier. Because he produced all those early movies, and then when he saw there wasn't anything for him to do. To me, that's the great story of this. That's the story I want to tell. This guy who walked away from this thing that he was built to do, that he trained as an actor. When you hear him sing, he's basically performing those songs as if they're monologues. Yeah. As if he's acting out those songs. So for him to walk away from this thing that he was, I can't think to of To stop anybody. acting. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I mean, and, and he also had this great understanding of what character does. I have this clip in the movie from uh, Islands in the Sun, Island in the Sun, rather, where he's wearing this big brown suit that's two sizes too big for him, clearly. Because in those days, even poor people were beautifully dressed. And Harry said, no, I want this suit to look like it's a hand-me-down. Yeah. That it's just maybe his father's suit and uncle's suit right. that doesn't belong on him. So yeah. we see him, we think, something's wrong, what is it? Right. Yeah, and the, and the, you know his tone around not, compromising his integrity in terms of how black people are represented was it was interesting you, you, you know because it's not it's not bitter but it's angry and and you know the, the it was hard to really sort of decipher his real feelings about sydney i think it's interesting because clearly they love each other right but they took two different paths harry said i'm not going to do this but if sydney hadn't done those movies they wouldn't have got made is the world better off for those movies not having been made? It is not. So I can, my point is, I think you can see both sides. Sure. So that by the end of the movie, because I wrestle with how to deal with Sidney Poitier, because there's been so much said about him, and, and, and it's kind of this undercurrent for me. There are two themes. One is a wasted opportunity. Yeah. That all these, you know, Rupert Cross, who never got to do what he should have done, or Diana Was he the one, the, the leukemia guy? Yeah, the one who was supposed to be in the last detail, who Bob Town told me that, he was like this incredibly charismatic figure that women loved yeah. and, and men admired. They weren't even jealous because we can't even do what he does. Yeah. It was just kind of unbelievable. That's a great, like, great movie, too. Yeah. And they, they were supposedly co-stars. Yeah. They, everybody realized in the 1950s, Rupert Cross is a six foot four Jamaican. He's never going to get hired. He's never going to be a movie Cassavetes star. Cassavetes use him. Cassavetes use him. Not only that, if you listen to Jack Nicholson's voice, you listen to that kind of snarl, mm. Mm. that kind of empty laugh of his, I think he's doing Rupert Cross. You can hear that he's absorbed what Cross did as an actor. I've always believed this. Well, I like those kind of connections that you make as a film critic in this movie because you can't help yourself. So like, the, that's why I had to watch it twice, too, is that there's so many little kind of connections you make that just kind of blow by and you're kind of like, wait a minute. 
you know. But but because like you can't help yourself. But that's sort of like the reason why I think it should have been longer. But also, you know, it makes it sort of dense. You know, the the connection between Robert Downey Sr., Robert Downey Jr., Robert Downey Sr. making Putney Swope, which was had a tremendous impact on independent film and, and, a way, and an impact on how blacks were represented in movies. But yet he didn't have the confidence to let his lead speak for himself. So Robert Downey Sr. does the, the ADR and talks for the main black character who is the center of the goddamn thing. And then you kind of connect it to uh, uh, Tropic Thunder with uh, Downey's award nominated performance where he's basically doing blackface. And st- so, like, and that goes right by. I mean, that's I just that's twenty seconds. I could, but I could have done more because if you listen to Putney Swope, you can hear it's clearly Downey doing a lot of voices in it. So yeah. it's basically. So, who, but how do you, you feel it? about that? Again, I feel like this is somebody who wanted to get his movie made and didn't trust his performance. And I asked Antonio about it because there was a kind of power that that I think that he said he thought that Downey was looking for. Downey Senior had that. Arnold just wasn't that kind of actor. Yeah. That Arnold had the look, but he didn't have the sound. Oh, the, the lead, Putney. Yeah. yeah, this, yeah. this actor, Arnold So, Jones. So let's go back to, like, 68. So now, like, because this opens the door. Like, so whether, you, you know, however you're conflicted about Sidney Poitier, those two movies, and I read that the Mark Harris book, you know, which I thought was great. Yeah, absolutely great. And, I mean, it definitely informed a lot of what, you know, some of what you It's one of the reasons I thought this could be a book, because I thought- It th- should be a book. I don't know. Why isn't it a book? Because everybody turned it down. Everybody turned it down twice, I should say. Because I was, how is it not a book? Be- all right, you, I get you, it. Because, right. yeah, I pitched it with Toni Morrison writing an introduction. She offered those lines. You couldn't get a university press to fucking take it? Nobody wanted this thing. Jesus Christ. That seems criminal. Okay. But, all right, so so Harris and you, uh, you know, both sort of posit this idea that those two movies, that, that was the beginning of a lot of things. Sure. Black representation in a different way, but also black money-making possibility at the box office, and then in some ways opened the door for, for black artists to take more chances. It should have, because you look at 1968 as being going from Night of the Living Dead yep. to these two Sidney Poitier movies being Oscar nominees. Same year. In the same year. These these events are happening at the same time, and Sidney Poitier is now the number one box office star in the world. If these two examples shouldn't say, we were wrong to be racist. Right. The thing you always hear, and believe me, I've written these pieces. Every once in a while, you write this piece about why is there more black representation in Hollywood, and they go, I don't care. You know, I, if somebody's green or blue or orange, I just want their money. But that's not true. Right. It's clearly not true. Right. I, mean, I have to tell you, a couple of years ago. Uh, after George Floyd and all these sort of people were, were impaneling themselves, yeah. I started getting all these calls. Um, so we're going to put together this blue ribbon commission, and 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 we just feel so torn about what's going on now. We just wondered, could you join our commission and help us figure out what to do? I went, no, I don't have the time. And here's my answer: hire black people. Yeah. Hire two, yeah. not one, because there's one. He's got to that person has to represent everybody. Yeah. Two, so they're two different yeah. points of view, and you see that. It's not monolithic. Hire two black people. You must get asked to do that shit all the time. I just started saying no to it because, like, it's it's ridiculous. It's it's not a hard problem to solve. Yeah, but that's why I say in 1968, you've got in the heat of the night. Yeah, and to, to, in the heat of the night, and and guess who's coming to dinner on one hand? Yep. and Night of the Living Dead on the other. If this isn't proof that there is box office power in having black stars, two studio films to an independent film that was so underestimated they didn't even bother to copyright it they forgot to do that yeah so it's public domain so 
these between these three movies, there's so much box office generated. Shouldn't that be the fulcrum that makes you go, let's push the racism out of the way and start to integrate? And it still doesn't happen. It still becomes about people seizing opportunity. It's about Melvin going from Watermelon Man to going, I can't do this again, to making Sweet Sweetback's badass song. And that clip we have, which is still mind-blowing to me, where the police car is on fire, and somebody walks up and, and, and opens the door. You go, the guy oh, my God, that yeah. door... That, yeah. It's hot metal, and he just grabs it and opens the door. You kind of go, "All right." Again, that clip shouldn't be in some compendium, the greatest film clips of all time. Yeah, but I mean, but so the turn, you know, you kind of hang it on Gordon uh, Parks and and Van Peebles to, as the big sort of shifters of the of the um, paradigm a little bit, right? Yeah, I with mean, their movies because Gordon Parks, but again, Gordon Parks has proven himself as this incredible talent and so when he gets to do his studio movie the first studio movie directed by an African American he has to write direct produce and he composes a score right I mean that's crazy it's crazy but it's it's <coughs> it's honest representation you know I mean, but I also think it's Park's thing too that I'm going to do all these things because it's the thing he said to me I thought I was going to never direct another movie again I thought they'd take this chance on me if it fails no black person's going to get another studio movie so I'm going to do everything I ever wanted to do. Like that great shot of getting back to Westerns, of those horses yeah. silhouetted oh, by that end, sunrise. Yeah. Right. And those kids getting on. It's, like, yeah. it's mind-blowing. What's that movie called again? That's The Learning Tree. Yeah. The thing that was sort of, uh, I think, new for me outside of all of it, thank you, uh, for doing what you did. <laughs> the, the label of exploitation of, of those films from the 70s. What you know, I think what what that was in my mind was something campy. Was it was something right? So so like I didn't pay attention to it because I thought it was a a, a, low, a, a a sort of you know kind of people liked it because it was kind of uh, it, it represented something goofy, not something real, right? So I got I'm the guy who watches your documentary two nights ago the first time, and I got to watch Coffee for the first time. For the first time, because of the that the black exploitation epithet, you kind of dismissed as being jokey. Because you, be right, because your movie, your documentary, I've got it, and it's my fault. But I, you know, because I like Pam Greer, I've seen her in a few things. But I didn't, I contextualized, you know, the Raging Bull Easy Rider thing, the 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 sort of you know the white guys hijacking Hollywood and doing the anti hero thing. But you know, I watched Coffee for the first time, yeah. and and it's grittier than any of that shit, and it's more real life. It's it's raw shit, man. It's what Toni Morrison said. It's the quotes that Toni Morrison said that I have in the movie. It's just also this thing, too, where you hear, oh, coffee, she's badass. And Toni, said, Toni Morrison would go, I hate that because what that does is it's just so reductive. It is reductive. And it's basically saying she's not acting. It's not a movie that's about, in this way, metaphorically, about black women having to be nurturers and protectors. And and so to see the burden that that puts on her in, in performance terms, and that she delivers in a way that generally you didn't expect to see oh, yeah. in and, an action but film. But dude, in that one scene where she fucking cons that dealer to take her to the house, you know, where he she's gonna you know kill the main dealer, and all that sort of guy, when that guy pulls away to go shoot up in the kitchen, that moment, it's like you don't see that shit. You know that you know, and and the integrity of it as a passing moment, as being something gritty and fucking horrible, before she blows the guy away, was was kind of mind blowing to me because none of those, maybe Panic in Needle Park, maybe, 
but none of those seventies movies, you know, were 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 that graphic and that visceral and that menacing. But that even that Panic in New Park is about you know the antihero circling the drain before he goes down. Sure, but but I'm just talking about graphic heroin. But, but, uh, but I know what you're talking yeah. about too. But I'm also trying to make that parallel that's between right. between what those movies did right. and what those movies left behind. Because right. that's an important point to make. Too, totally, you make that, it that yeah. those movies sacrifice heroism because it was a luxury that white actors had. They played heroes since the beginning of movies. So they could say, well, we're not going to play heroes anymore because we're going to try to wrestle with uh, the Vietnam War and the impotence this country feels. But these movies can't be about Vietnam right. because then exhibitors won't book them. So instead, we'll internalize all that kind of impotence right. and, and make these characters who can't get manage their way through a single day and they <laughs> turn to heroin. And I'm not saying these things aren't issues, yeah. but the fact is that, you know. Or, or Five Easy Pieces where he just like, gets in a truck. Like he just like jumps, really, on, jumps on the back of the truck and plays the piano. Yeah, or, yeah, and then he's like in an oil field, you know, the, the scion of some rich creative family. I mean, that becomes kind of metaphorical for the whole thing, doesn't it? I uh-huh. mean, he leaves, he leaves privilege behind yeah. to slum and then he goes back to it <laughs> yeah but i mean the, that that's what the reason i want to make this point was that, that these this heroism that american movies have been, always been about that's often been the myth since the beginning yeah people affecting change mm-hmm. and, and 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 changing things for the better when mainstream movies left those yeah. that, that behind and and and, and i'm as big and as big an admirer of that golden age as anybody the fact is, a lot of these movies didn't make money. And John Kelly, who ran Warner Brothers in the 70s, I was offered a job at Sony Pictures in the early 2000s, so I met with him, and I said to Did him... Did you take the job? No. Uh, what was it? Uh, development executive. Oh, okay. And he's like, no, I I can sleep at night. Sure. And I don't have to say no to people who I'd rather be in business with because the studio didn't want to be in business with them. But he said to me, I said to him, so... I have to ask you what you guys paid to make Superfly. You must get this question all the time. Right. And he goes, I said, nobody's ever asked me that question. And it was like $150,000. He said, I could have written a check myself. In retrospect, I probably should have bought it myself and released it. And he said, in terms of return on investment, Superfly was the biggest profit maker he had during his time at Warner Brothers. This is a guy who was there when they made The Exorcist, for God's sake. But, you know, $150,000 leading back to about $25 million. And he said to me, and this is one of the things that kept bouncing around in my head and led to this getting done. The dirty secret of the American cinema of the 1970s yeah. is that black movies financed it. He said, don't forget MGM was saved from bankruptcy by Shaft. And a lot of these movies made money. We, and he, he said also, and this other thing that's in the movie too that I wanted to try to make. Because they were floundering. Yeah, and right. because and also because if you're an American moviegoer and you've been raised on a myth of heroes and you're going to see... The Panic in Needle Park. Yeah, you think you're like, what I the hell is this? I don't. I can step over this in my neighborhood. I don't need to go see the movies. Right. So that so th- that was the argument that Harris made that Doolittle was kind of the end of it. You know that they they didn't have they couldn't pick a winner anymore. Even Doolittle wasn't a winner. And no, the that's point what I mean. that, that he made too is that they, it's ballot stuffing. The reason they got nominated it, it wasn't right. even an honest nomination for right. Best Picture. It's just that the studio was the system was corrupt enough that you could like create a, a block of studio votes to get an Oscar nomination. Can I ask you an aside real quick? Of course. Uh, don't you want to see a movie about the making of Doolittle? Oh, Did God. you read that shit? Oh, my God. Isn't it unbelievable? Crazy, dude. But I asked Pache about it. He goes, I don't think that's what happened with me. He didn't remember the way Mark has it in the book. But 
That's okay. Well, well just in, on, on that island with the bugs, you know, trying to get that thing done with drunk Rex Harrison. It's fucking crazy. Drunk, angry Rex Harrison. Yeah. And his <laughs> yeah. ex-girlfriend. It's right. Like, oh, it's, it's, it, it really is like a, a restoration comedy. Totally. And, and, a, and a disaster movie simultaneously. Unbelievable. So, with, uh, with Superflying Shaft. Now, what you say, what the argument you're making, which I think is great... Is that you know the shift from the antihero, the reaction to the antihero was was like visually and literally black confidence. Absolutely, it's and those characters. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, it, even in the case of Superfly, where he's an antihero, he plays it like a hero. Yeah, for sure, and, he, and got a little criticism for that. Got a ton of criticism yeah. for that, and and it's this thing too, going almost back to the Sidney Poitier thing, where a lot of these movies are criticized by people who didn't see them, and you understand that people are asking for, you know. All kinds of roles will be played. But as so many actors have said during that period, if we aren't making these movies, no movies are being made. And, and, and 1978 proves it. You know, suddenly there are no black movies being made anymore because but, they stopped making the black action films. But what I was going to say, too, is that getting back to John Kelly's point, you know, and even Ron O'Neill says it in the movie, we played for 20 weeks in Boston and we ran out of black people in three weeks. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so this was, you know, a totally new world. But I guess the point is to me that black exploitation is in itself as a heading uh, reductive. Completely that, and, yeah. and 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 I don't have an issue with it as a term. It's just that, you know, what it invites people to think. Like for you and so many people, you know, they think it's all they, these movies are parody movies, right? And and they weren't. Is they, or but, over the top? They were over the top, but that's okay. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, is a James Bond movie not over the top? Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. is 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 a super is a Marvel movie not over the top? And they're all money makers, but these are also movies that I was saying, and they say in the, in the movie that are about concerns in in, in the cities. You know, yeah. about, about how do you deal with right. with with being overrun by by angry landlords or drugs or or crime, black on black crime, because the police aren't going to come help you. And these movies are uh, attempting to answer those questions in these ways that really are about a kind of American tradition of myth of heroes stepping up. But the other advantage they had, too, and this is by sheer inadvertence. Yeah. Is these soundtracks being released for? Well, that's yeah. That was like to me, like you know, the seizing of uh, and and creating a new business model, right? But the the thing that was really provocative and, and great to know was the connection you made, which I guess uh, Isaac Hayes made, was that he was inspired by that Sergio Leone film where Her- uh, Henry Fonda plays a heavy for the first time in his career. Was that the, which was at Once Upon a Time, time in, in the West. West. I remember this, and this, all these building blocks that made this movie. I go to Sundance for the first time in 99. I never want to go to Sundance. Yeah. I really care less. But I'm, I'm, I'm invited to be on the jury, so I go, I'll do that. And so I get dragged, shanghaied into, dragooned into this dinner. Not this dinner, but this filmmaker's lunch. Yeah. And, and the Hughes brothers are there. With their film American Pimp, and yeah. I always want to meet them. And yeah. turns out they're from Detroit, and so yeah. we like talking. And I say, what I really liked about Dead President is that use of uh, "Walk On Bye Bye" as a case because I'd always thought. And then Albert Hughes says with me, we say in unison, it was stolen from Once Upon a Time in the West. And I thought, I'm not the only person who thinks like this to have that kind of thing visited upon you. Oh, so it's not just me; it's other people. And that's why I thought there had to be an audience for this as a book because I feel like there are too many connections like this that... So you're saying that you could hear it in, in Isaac's song? 
Oh my God! It's and, like Enio's soundtrack. Oh, oh my God! I got to ask. The, the unfortunate thing about this taking so long is that so many people died. Like yeah, Isaac yeah. Hayes said he wanted to do yeah, it. Yeah. And I asked him about this when I met him. He goes, "Oh my God!" He said, "And I wish we could have got him saying this." I think we were eight notes shy of being actionable. It was. I thought it was like hilarious, but he knew what he was doing. But I, right. I said, "But also." That feels like the baton being passed. He goes, absolutely. He said, if I hadn't done Walk On By, Gordon Parks doesn't hear that song and think, that sounds like a piece of movie music. I'm going to get this guy to do Shaft. Which then becomes this other whole kind of thing where that opening of Shaft is so revolutionary. And one of the things I was hoping I could do with this is to sort of let people know what it was like where all these drums were being bought, dropped one after another. That's why for me, and you tell me if I succeeded in this, I want every five minutes of movie for you to go, what? Yeah, for sure. What? Yeah, yeah. Because I thought otherwise it's just, it's just a history. And well, it's kind but of also, he, well, that was the, the big turn was you, you know the the argument uh, for these black leads are uh, uh, as a reaction to the antiheroes. You know, in, in terms of their. But then again, but, but we I distracted you from the the conversation about how you know releasing the soundtracks first became publicity for the movie and the the artists like Mayfield and Earth Wind and Fire and 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 uh, you know Aretha Franklin and who and the others were already established artists. So it was kind of the new business model. It, a business model that changes the movies because then we go from that to Saturday Night Fever, which is also released early. Right, I remember that. the soundtrack. high school. The soundtrack came out early. Well, th- this is, but th- this is sort of interesting because it's always been the issue, uh, and and you know most of the doc is 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 sort of uh, indicting it. But it, again, you know, after you talk about after the arc of the seventies, and you were able to source Tony Gennaro's, you know, to, to, is that his last name? To Travolta's character in Saturday Night Fever, walking down the street. Tony Monero. Tony Monero, you know, at, walking down the street as being a direct sort of lift of Richard Roundtree in the first Shaft movie, that, you know, that they co-opted the confidence of these black leads who were working against the antihero and, and uh, appropriated it, all of it, the whole model for, for Saturday Night Fever. That well, That's new information. Again, to me, it's just maybe this is like the proto moment of being the Hughes Brothers and Sundance. But yeah. I've seen this movie and my friends and we kind of look at each other and go, isn't this Shaft? Uh-huh. You can't, if you're a black person, right. Shaft had only been f- six years early. You can't look and go, isn't this Shaft? Right. Isn't this like the same key? But then he takes these white guys who play disco music who weren't even disco music before that. And it, like the whole thing is exactly the the problem in a way, but yet you love the movie. Listen, I think that, I, I, of course I do. And then, and the point I try to make in, in the movie is that if you're a black person, a yeah. person of color, right. it's hard to love pop culture if it doesn't love you back. But that's kind of the story of being a black person in America, isn't right. it? Right, okay. And, 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 but that business model does become the way of the world. I mean, by the 80s, the soundtrack is the way the movie is sold. You yeah. know, that's part of the rise of MTV. Right. Is these music videos that are songs from the soundtrack. Oh, that's true. That then are so, I mean. that bits be- from the movies. Yes, absolutely. And major artists doing these songs. Yeah. That becomes the way that movies are sold for a long time. Yeah. And, and this all started in the 70s. And I just like, this, uh, we've got to, I've got to draw attention to this. Uh-huh. And because it feels crazy to me yeah. that it hasn't been. And I think it's, but again, it's, it's this 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 reduction of black culture, and and what I say in the film is that a de facto underground economy and cultural movement, because it wasn't like it wasn't successful, it just wasn't being covered, 
And then, right. and, and, and then when it was being covered, it was like all these sort of pieces about black exploitation and what that was doing. It fucked my head up. Uh, like it framed it uh, in, improperly to me, you know, to the point where I didn't, you know, investigate more because I thought it was because I don't love camp. You know, and I don't, you know what I mean? Sure. I mean, and, and, and I think a lot of people sort of thought that, that these movies probably felt not dissimilar to the ways that African Americans have been treated in film before, which is to say turned into a joke. Mm. So why go? But you see the opening of Shaft, and I just did a thing at Indie Memphis uh, where Willie Hall lives, who is the drummer in the Barcase. Yeah. So that's him doing those 16ths in Shaft. Yeah. And I said to him, it felt, always felt to me like you guys are doing a little bit of Peter Gunn, but also a little bit of Norman Whitfield. He goes, it's exactly that. Yeah. I said, but uh, I said, but also, too, you can hear like the backbeat. You can hear the bass drum. You can hear the snare. Whenever there's a footfall by Richard Roundtree, yeah. it's following. He goes, absolutely. He said, Isaac Hayes bought me a metronome and put it in my hotel room so I would fall asleep at night seeing the clicking in, in, for a click track. Yeah. And so he said, I, by the time we got to the studio, I didn't have to look up. I could hear the click and know exactly what it, and Isaac said, don't look at that screen, just play, because if you're following the click, you're playing along to his footfalls. And that's the same thing that's happening in Saturday Night Fever. In fact, when I saw that Bee Gees documentary earlier, I went, yeah. how do you not mention this? Right. How do you not say this? Yeah, because you had to. <laughs> you're you're the guy. Thank you, thank yeah. you for my documentary. That's but going I up also against, I really going up against Wakanda forever, so nobody's going to see it. Well, look, man. I mean, the, the, it's it, being the guy that makes the connections and and sort of uh, you know presents reframes history. I mean, this is an issue. Like I talked to Gates about this too. That you know you're literally with Gates's uh, y- you know uh, documentary on PBS about y- you know the the black business community is that and not unlike you sadly you know these are these are lessons that are actually being recontextualized and banned in schools in red states that it's not it's 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 black history that should be human history that we all should sort of understand and know and we're living in a time where if you don't if you're in the arts and you're not fighting the good fight then it's all lost whether it's Wakanda Forever or not, you know, that Wakanda Forever doesn't exist without what you're talking about in your documentary. They should be showing it first at the theater. Speak louder. No, I mean, my, <laughs> my hope is that if the people get tired of seeing Wakanda Forever for the 19th time that weekend, because probably everybody's going to go out this weekend, you come home and you turn on Netflix and you go, oh, 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 because in fact, I had a show on Epics and I would go around to towns with the filmmakers and I did one with Ryan Coogler yeah. and I showed him the beginning of The Learning Tree yeah. and all the things we're talking about here I was saying to him he goes oh my god I didn't yeah. know any of this yeah. stuff but I also like there's just so many moments in the doc you know where you know your reaction as a younger person to to Isaac Hayes on the Academy Awards playing that song with those chains and you realizing that he's re he's owning these things and and, and fuck youing them I mean, the see, Isaac, for me, the moment and I mentioned this in the doc, and I'm glad you brought this up. See Isaac Hayes wearing chains, not around his wrists, but around his torso. Yeah. And to be playing that song, it's like, for me, I just As thought, a look. Oh, my God. Yeah. But, I mean, but he had that look with the seat on national television. Yeah. yeah. The fact that Shaft's success made that Isaac Hayes inescapable. And I thought, this is the beginning of a, of a new world. And that's the year of Superfly and Lady Sings the Blues and Sounder. And you get, and I was just thinking, oh my God, because I would compare Curtis Mayfield to John Williams. He did five scores yeah. during that period. Yeah. In addition to doing 15 other albums, so he made 20 records. So good. But the soundtracks he made are Let's Do It Again, Claudine, 
Sparkle, yeah, and Superfly. Almost all those songs live on one way or another. In fact, John Kelly said to me, the great thing about the Superfly soundtrack is that every single that came off of that was a hit. So it kept the movie alive. In addition right. to it coming out the month before, right. it wasn't just, it just a song was a hit. You know, there's Give Me Your Love. There's Freddy's Dead. There's Superfly. Yeah. These things that, that the album generated so many hit singles. Yeah. It kept the movie alive. Yeah. That had never happened before. You, see, you might have the case of, and I make this this point, of an Elvis Presley movie or a Beatles movie, but those people were acts, pop acts, and yeah. that didn't translate into the entire culture. And oftentimes, you know, people go see the movies and roll their eyes. And you have this thing that like Curtis Mayfield did as a composer and a songwriter where he would write in character. You may have had this thing happen to you, too. I know so many people who have heard a Superfly soundtrack who've never seen the movie, yeah. who've imagined the movie yeah. based on the songs. Sure, and the cover of the album. The cover of the album, but also the song. Yeah, sure. Now, each song has a different tempo, yeah. a different feel to it. They're yeah. all about these states of mind these characters are experiencing. Yeah. You know, uh, Deep. Freddie's Dead or, or Eddie, You Should Know Better. Each each one of these songs has a, a feel that feels like uh, that has the sort of the, the emotional weight of character yeah, expression yeah, to it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And that, that not had not really been done before. I can't think of another person who composed a soundtrack in that way. Yeah. It's also this thing, too, where before he started doing these soundtracks, it's clearly Curtis Mayfield had the impact and the influence on Marvin Gaye, who turns into this this social activist yeah. slash songwriter. They're even singing in the song register. They're both singing falsetto. Yeah. And then so suddenly you go from Curtis Mayfield to Marvin Gaye, what's going on, then to Superfly, then to Marvin Gaye doing the Trouble Man soundtrack. Well, that's interesting because Marvin really wasn't doing falsetto before that, was he? And that was his natural register. Hmm. But Barry Gordy told him it wasn't masculine, so he didn't sing in it. Hmm. And that t- Marvin hearing... Um, I don't know. Who knows this? Well, then, like, but then after these seventies movies, you kind of point out, which were the later seventies, that there was definitely mainstream movies: Lady Sing the Blues, Mahogany, Cooley High, uh, the 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 one you just mentioned with the um, with the uh, the singers that didn't really do that oh, well. Sparkle, which Sparkle. is basically Dream Girls before yeah. Dream Girls, and and so. That becomes sort of bingo along the traveling all stars, which I remember the Belafonte, uh, Bill Cosby movies, which I remember. Well, there was that, a few that, of those. Well, those are movies that saved Sidney Poitier's career, and this is the, the most amazing thing. Yeah, I, like I was saying, I was trying to figure out a way to deal. Was with it that. Uptown Saturday Night? That was the first one. Yeah, but Sidney Poitier went from being the biggest thing in the world in 1968. Yeah, to because of the way the culture shifted, being irrelevant. By 1970, yeah, in two years to have that kind no of, kidding that that kind of, first of all the, a build of roughly 20 years uh-huh. to get where he was yeah and they have this all of this fall apart in the course of two years and then to reinvent himself and to start doing comedy and to make himself this not not the comedian but the straight man and to make fun of what people thought Sidney Poitier was in these movies and to become a movie star again based on that. I cannot think of any other case in the history of the movies where somebody has had that kind of foresight and understanding of audience and of, of self-awareness to rescue himself from obscurity. Name it. Not obscurity, know. yeah. But no, like, no, but, no, 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 he fallen. No, no, he had, but, but I'm saying like De Niro did it a little bit. But uh, De Niro was, but De Niro was always getting yeah, he, yeah, work. he was not. Yeah, he was an obscure. Nobody but, called De Niro a sellout and a joke. That's right. But nope. he did end up doing some pretty goofy shit, and it was kind of oh, great he, to he see. He flipped his career around, yeah. but he wasn't the architect. That's right. It. That's right. Poache goes, and and again, when I met, uh, uh, out of necessity, this, I imagine. 
Well, you know, of course he did. I mean, yeah. the same reason he doing Lilies of the Field out of necessity because if he doesn't do it, it's not going to get made. How do you further the cause of black actors? Mm. I mean, because again, it's 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 a tricky position that he was in. Wasn't Belafonte in Uptown Saturday Night too? He is. He played the heavy, right? Yeah, he's a small. He's basically doing this parody of the of Godfather. The Godfather. Yeah, right. Because he studied with. Marlon I remember Brando. loving those movies, but they're they're like they're full of these great little performances. And there's so many people I wish I had a chance to get in this movie because they passed away. There's an actor named Roscoe Lee Brown. Yeah, I remember him. Who's in Uptown. He Saturday has that night. voice. He, the, this yeah. great voice. We yeah, also yeah. had this thing where just before that the scene we have, that, that the scene that's in the movie, he's this this elected official. He's trying to figure out which fake pose. Does he want to be a man of the people and wears dashiki? Or does yeah. he want to be upright and wear his suit and tie? Right. And so he's got all these these. these 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 portraits that he flips around in his office, and just seeing him shift from one thing to another. But he's also in, he, he's an uptight, uh, playing this gay character, this unapologetically gay character. I mean, Roscoe worked a ton. I wished that he lived long enough for me to talk to him for this. There's, I mean, I knew Rudy Ray Moore, and I wish I'd been able to get him. I mean, my first brush with fame in 1975, a friend of mine and I are walking around downtown Detroit trying to figure out what to do to get out of the heat. And we see this little guy walk past us wearing a leather hat, a leather jacket, yeah. with a matching bag and shoes. And in Detroit in 1975, nobody was dressed like that. So I just thought, this guy must be an actor. I don't know how I thought this. And so I go, wait, are you Derville Martin? He goes, you guys know who I am? <laughs> we go, yeah. And he goes, you want to come see my movie? We go, okay. Now, this would be the point where he throws us in the back of a panel truck and we never right. heard from him again. Yeah, yeah. He walks us around the corner to this movie theater where Dolomite is playing, yeah. which he has directed. He walks past the ticket t- taker and goes, it's okay, these guys are with me. And the guy's looking at him like, and who are you? Yeah. <laughs> he yeah. walks us in and says, okay, guys, enjoy. And that's how I saw Dolomite. Wow. And we sat through it four times. And yeah. we basically sat there until it kicked us out of the movie. We were reciting the dialogue along with the actors we yeah, for so yeah. long. And then I got to meet Rudy, Rudy Ray Moore because I was there. You should. No, I didn't know you. But because yeah. whatever else Dolomite is about, he understood as a, as a performer, Rudy Ray Moore, yeah. how to make an entrance. Yeah. And so many of these movies were about entrances, huh. which is this thing that movies, American movies do better than anybody. Is people making an entrance? You think about Marlena Dietrich or uh-huh. or, or, or all these these glamour entrances, uh-huh. and Billy D. Williams gets one, and Lady mm-hmm. Sings the Blues, and there's so many because they, they remind us of the glory and the power of wanting to see something different from our own lives. Yeah, and and that's what a lot of these black movies did too. They offer glamour and heroism when that was no longer in fashion. In fact, I think they brought that stuff back into fashion and then were swept off to the margins because that's what always happens in black culture. Well, yeah, and you you sort of, uh, that you kind of blame the whiz a little bit. I don't blame the whiz, but I think the whiz was blamed. Yeah. I think the, you know. When, I see. So they, they said this tanked, we're done with black people. Because the point I make in the movie is that yeah. you know, it may be, it got bad reviews, but so did coffee. A lot of these movies got bad reviews. I, I, but the whiz I, didn't make money. That's the thing that the whiz really didn't make money. <laughs> yeah, the whiz, and I had an executive say to me once, the whiz was like the black version of Heaven's Gate. I mean, it lost a ton of money, and there are a lot yeah. of expectations about it. Yeah, but you know, should the guy who directed Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon? Be yeah, I don't know how that happened. What's the backstory on that? You don't know? Why did he I, take that gig? Because the guy who was supposed to do it, John Batten, was apparently fired after Saturday Night Fever. That was so he's doing someone thing. a favor. Uh, well, they were going to make the movie, and he thought, you know, I can do this. Yeah. Um, I think he was wrong, but he thought, I can do this, and probably thought, I want to do something different. But John Badham, who was supposed to do it, had that objection. So, I think this is great, but I think Diana Ross is too old. And they went, 
Yeah. And then he was done, and Cindy Lumet thought, I can make this work. They could have used Janet, but she was too young probably then. She's right? way too young, but they could have used Stephanie Mills, who had been the, the show on Broadway. True. But they wanted to do it with a star, and, you know, it was a miscalculation, the kind of thing that happens a lot, but when a black movie fails, it's the end of all black movies, and also, <laughs> all black movies are the same. Yeah. Black right. movies are a genre, so if it's a black comedy, it's a black movie. If it's a black Western, it's a black movie. If it's a black romantic melodrama, it's a black movie. Yeah. So when it fails, it's not a Western failing, it's black movies failing. Yeah. It's not a romantic comedy failing, it's black movies failing. And by the way, when these movies fail in the mainstream, they eventually bounce back. We were hearing about the end of the romantic comedy until the George Clooney, Julie Roberts movie is a success, so suddenly they're back. Yeah. But I like how you sort of set up that after that, the whiz, you know, and then you sort of sort of focus on the new kind of black independent cinema. You start talking about, you know, Charles Barnett and, and who's a genius. Oh, my God. A poet. He's yeah. A poet. I mean, I remember seeing that movie. When did it come out? Like it, in 80, it, 78? It, it, it came out in 78, but it, it wasn't, it didn't get a real release until like the late 80s. Yeah, because I saw it and I didn't know what it was. And I saw it, I don't remember where I was. Maybe I was still in college. Is that possible? Like mid to late 80s? And I remember going to see it because it looked interesting. And it was, you know, it's an unforgettable movie. And I had no idea how to contextualize it. Yeah, but other than just watching it as a movie. Like, I didn't know who Charles Barnett was, but I became fascinated with him, but I didn't know where to find any of his other stuff. And it's sort of an interesting story, right? There's it's not a, a lot there. It's a great story. Sh- his short films. I mean, no, he's not, he did um, 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 To Sleep With Anger. Oh, he that's right, the, To Sleep With Anger. The that's, Glass Shield. That fucking, that movie's great. That's a Danny Glover movie? That's fucking, that movie's insane, dude. Isn't it? Yes. And, and... But don't you love the story he tells about showing his movie at UCLA and all these flower children finding themselves and smoking drugs? He goes, none of that was in my neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And because he makes this movie about black life where the father is there. And it's a movie about love. I mean, you you see that that man looking at his daughter and his son and his wife and going out and basically crushing his soul to make a living. Yeah. But being in that neighborhood and being a part of something. I mean, that is... You couldn't make make that movie today because people wouldn't know how to do it with the kind of deafness and poetic touches that that Beautiful. has. Beautiful. And again, movie still being imitated into the 21st That's century. That's right. You were able to track all the influence that movie had. Oh, my God. You could have done, I could have done a whole movie on that. Yeah. All, all the people who were stolen from him. But, you know, I felt it was kind of great to go from that to then Martin Scorsese. To Shutter Island. Yeah, direct lift. But that was an homage. I mean, you framed it like an homage. No, I'm not trying to say he still no. It's completely homage. Yeah. Scorsese, he wouldn't know that. But, you know, it's... And that's the only clip I have from the 21st century because I could have done the same thing with um, um, American Gangster. Yeah. Which lifts stuff from um, um, Gordon's War, those women, like, cutting up the Oh, yeah, all that stuff. Yeah, the cutting up the coke thing. And I don't quite understand, like, one thing that's, like, sticking in my craw. What's that? Well, the... It's weird because you you know Sydney and uh, Harry make that western you know as as a, a reaction to Butch and Sundance right like I don't under like the western thing the ongoing sort of obsession with it and need to regenerate it you know, for every generation over and over again to lesser and lesser success I don't understand it I don't understand why there's a need to own that fucking genre. I think it's the, the one thing that feels really intrinsically American because, you know, a lot of comedies, that sort of stage play aspect was lifted from European art. The Western feels like something that belongs to this country. Yeah. And it's also about this aspect of the 
still the wide open spaces. Yeah. There's romance about it that people love. I'm, I'm not so in love with it either. I was actually fonder of the stuff that sort of like flipped it on his head, like once upon a time in the West and those kinds of yeah. things. And yeah. I, I get that. But I also get too that if you, if you grew up a certain way of a certain generation, the Western meant something to you. And to not see yourself in, I mean, Fishburne talks about going with his father. Yeah. And the two Westerns I chose for that clip were The Searchers and Nevada Smith, because they're yeah. both about race. Yeah. And also yeah. having them be framed in the doorway. I thought, I mean, that was the fun of making this, is I got to like do, be really deliberate about all the clip choices. That was the fun of it. Yeah. It shocked me about how much fun that was. That, that moment in, in The Searchers where John Wayne's going to kill the girl because she's now, uh, you know, with them. It's fucking devastating moment but i don't have the whole movie so i gotta just have that doorway i get you and also in nevada smith he's supposed to be part native american but he's also losing his life losing everything around him with that doorway frame i just thought yeah if, we're gonna, if i'm gonna deal with a western i'm gonna deal with a western that deals with race in that way well That's i mean look i mean like even this conversation i mean there's so much more in the doc and it was uh you know like again i i had to watch it twice it wasn't you re- like you really did i did yeah i'm touched by that man that means a lot to me Didn't, Thank doesn't you. it sound like i did it certainly sounds like you paid attention. <laughs> I, I, I was, I would for you, you could get that from a single viewing, but I'm, I'm clearly impressed. I mean, we know each other for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we never really had this kind of conversation no, before. Sir. And, yeah. and and now I'm sir. Okay, that's how long we know each other. I'm yeah. not sir in the conversation, but yeah. this is this has been really fun just because. I couldn't imagine that you would pay this kind of attention to something that I did. It's shocking to me. Well, I I, I think it's great, and I and I hope it uh, I hope it gets seen a lot. And it was great talking to you. Always, thank you so much, Mark. That was Elvis Mitchell, a fellow broadcaster and uh, now filmmaker. And the movie is is called "Is That Black Enough for You?" It's streaming on Netflix, and uh, it's it's great. So hang out a second. Okay, if you want to check out an episode from the archives this week, it was six years ago that I went out to New Jersey to interview Bruce Springsteen. It's episode 773, and it's available in all podcast feeds for free. It's definitely a great episode if you're a Bruce fan, and a great episode if you're a fan of this show, because it's a full-fledged WTF interview. We get into everything, including what he was thinking at the time about Trump's election, and a lot of what he said uh, actually could be said word for word today. What's your biggest fear? of it as we enter it i suppose would be that uh uh a lot of the worst things and the worst aspects of what he appealed to comes to fruition Mm. you know uh when you let that genie out of the bottle bigotry uh racism uh, when you let those things out of the bottle, they intolerance. don't. Yeah, intolerance. They they don't go back in the bottle that easily if they go back in at all. Right. You know whether it's a rise in hate crimes, people feeling they have license to speak and behave in ways that previously were considered un-American and are un-American. Uh, that's what he's appealing to, and so. My fears are that those things find a place in ordinary civil society demeans the uh, discussions and events of the day and the country changes in a way that is unrecognizable and we become estranged, as you say. You say, hey, I, well, wait a minute, you voted for Trump. I, I, 
I thought I knew who you were. You know, I'm not sure. You know, the country feels very estranged. You feel very estranged from your countrymen, you know? Yeah. Go listen to that in the same feed you're listening to this episode. And if you want all the WTF episodes ad-free, sign up for WTF Plus by going to the link in the episode description or go to WTFpod.com and click on WTF Plus. On Monday's show, we've got my talk with comedian Tommy Tiernan that I recorded in Ireland. Uh, Tommy and I have been sort of orbiting each other at festivals for for decades, it seems. Uh, you know, and I've watched him do stand-up a few times, and I sort of got up to speed with him because he is a, a huge uh, comedian uh, in Ireland and the UK. Uh, he's been here in the States a few times, and it was, I, I really, sometimes I really like, you know, knowing somebody and knowing their work a bit, but then sort of having to sit there and really dive in to, uh, to, to, you know, who they are and, 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 and more of their work. And I didn't really, I'm, I'm sad now because we didn't really talk about the Dairy Girls, you know, which is a show that he's in and it's a huge show. And Kit uh, has been watching it and loves it. And I, you know, I, I think that was sort of a blind side of that interview, but it was great to talk to him. Now, this is usually where I give you uh, my upcoming tour dates, but I don't have any more. After tonight, I'm done. But between us, I'm I'm sure I'll be at the comedy store. Probably all the time. Here's some guitar from the vault. <laughs> 